Welcome to Concept to Creation, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs who share their business journey. We'll hear what motivated them to turn their dreams into a business. They'll share stories from the trenches of business, from raising capital, creating products or services, navigating regulations, hiring employees, and managing competition and growth. We'll discover their successes and failures, and they'll provide advice for budding entrepreneurs. Now, here's your host and fellow entrepreneur, Mike Conrad. Welcome to episode number five of the Concept to Creation podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Today, my guests are Robert Boguski and Regina Lathrop. They are the husband-wife team behind Daytest, a Fremont, California-based company, which provides advanced, integrated PCBA testing and inspection services, servicing the contract manufacturing and EMS industries, as well as the OEM community since 1984. Robert and Regina purchased Daytest in 2005 with business partners, then bought out those partners in 2009. They kind of bought the company twice. I think in many ways, purchasing a company is perhaps even more challenging than starting one from scratch. Robert and Regina described their early venture as a rehabilitation project. We'll learn more about that and their journey into owning and operating their own business right now. Rob Boguski, Regina Lathrop, thanks for being my guest today on Concept to Creation. I really appreciate you being here, and I'm very excited to learn about uh, the how you acquired this business and your and your path to success. So uh, I, I know it probably wasn't a straight line. Uh, so I'm I'm anxious to get into the the bends and twists and turns of your journey in into this business world. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having us. Oh, my my pleasure. Thanks for being here. I'm going to put you on the spot, Rob. Uh, I read a uh, an article that you answered questions um, uh, for in 2014. So this goes back, you know, seven years or so. And here's what you said back in 2014. When you were asked, what is your footprint likely to develop in the coming uh, few years? And your answer was, unfortunately, my crystal ball is in the shop this week, but I will hazard to guess and say that five years from now, we'll be doing amazing things and can barely conceive of that we can barely conceive of today. Hopefully, we will also be having fun doing them and delivering new value uh, to our valued customers. Now, that was uh, that was seven years ago, um, and this is probably a better question for the end of the interview. But I'm gonna I'm gonna we'll start off with this, and then we'll kind of work backwards. Was your was your um, crystal ball that was in the shop still accurate? Are you having fun and are you doing amazing things all these years later? Actually, the crystal ball was still under warranty and working as <laughs> advertised. Um, interesting things have happened. Um, I'll leave it to others to judge whether they're amazing, but certainly we are doing a wider variety of things now than when we first started out on this journey in 2009. Newer things, newer markets, new applications, um, some things that 10, 11, 12 years ago, I wouldn't have imagined we've been doing, we would be doing that we're doing now. So yes, um, you know, it's an evolving industry and our business has had to evolve with it. Very good. Uh, so you, you didn't start Daytest from ground zero. You purchased the company. Is that correct? That's correct. What year was I, that? I first 
purchased Daytest with two partners in 2005. I and my two partners owned two businesses at that time. We had a contract manufacturing company and, and we purchased Daytest, which had been doing a lot of board level testing for us anyway. We were, we were a major customer of Daytest. And the then owners wanted to get out of the business for a variety of reasons that we don't need to get into here. And it was a very attractive offering for us because A, we would have captive testing capability, which was very important to us. And B, we saw the upside potential to the business uh, acquiring new customers and new markets and all of those good things that go with growing a business. So, so we acquired it in 05. And then four years later, my two partners um, made another decision, which was to merge our contract manufacturing business into a larger contract manufacturing business. And as a result of that transaction, Daytest was spun off and they bought me out of my share of the other business and I bought them out of their share of the testing business. And from July 2009 to this date, Regina and I have have run the business ourselves with no other partners and no other ownership. And we're very happy that it is that way. I'll bet that sounds like there was a lot of uh, strategic horse trading going on behind the scenes to make this work. There was horse trading and negotiating and lawyers and not all of it pleasant, but the, you know, that's how sausage gets made sometimes. And, and, the important thing is that the outcome was a good thing. Right, right. Now, I've said this on this show before, and you've, you've probably heard this. The uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics states that 75% of all uh, startup businesses fail within 10 years. Uh, yours wasn't a startup business per se, but kind of was because I'm sure uh, both of you put your stamp on this company and probably operate it differently than the former owners did, I'm, I'm assuming. Uh, so in many ways, it was a startup. And in many ways, it was even more difficult than a startup because not only, at least when you start up something, your way is the only way known. And when yes. one buys a business or takes over a business, particularly if you retain employees, all of a sudden it's like, that's not the way we used to do it, right? And, and uh, it's like having mom mad at dad. You know, dad would say yes, while mom says no. And... So um, you, you can kind of get the children feuding, you know, comparing and contrasting. Was, was, that, was that, am I accurately uh, uh, describing the scenario in that context? Yes. We, not, only, not only was it an acquisition, but it was in large part a rehabilitation project. Um, prior ownership, the, the, the company Daytest has existed since 1984. And when, when Regina and I took it over, prior ownership had, had milked it to some extent, to a large extent, uh, and used the proceeds to fund other ventures and other businesses. So it was in dire need of a cash infusion. Coupled with the fact that we were taking over in 2009, which was the the tail end of the of the Great Recession, um, we had all the challenges associated with that, and the company had had while it had existed for many years, because prior ownership 
kind of treated it as a sideline to their main businesses. It hadn't been marketed very well and it had been bled dry from an investment standpoint. So it, it really needed a lot of TLC to bring it back to life and to raise awareness in the market that, hey, we're here, we're existing, we're an ongoing business, a going concern. And not only that, but we're going to grow this business and get back into the market and get active and 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 make people interested in us and 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 open ourselves to new opportunities and new markets. So we had all of those challenges to contend with simultaneously while negotiating a recession and 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 trying to build something in what could be argued were the worst of times. And and I I wouldn't recommend those circumstances on on anybody. Um, you know, you've discussed it before, uh, same problems as others have had, but uh, the good news is we made it through and here we are. Regina, what's it like working with your husband? Good and bad. <laughs> now, this is not divorce court, so we can't fix anything no. here. What? No, we, you know, uh, first few years, I really didn't have a day-to-day -day role. I, I, um, you know, if some decisions needed to be bounced off of me, they would be, but I wasn't doing, I didn't have a regular day-to-day -day role. And now I'm doing our marketing. So I am, you know, doing things every day. And that's been for maybe four years or so, something like that. We have our moments and, you know, it, disagreements over how to handle a situation, things like that. I, you know, how long does it take I, Rob? To, how long does it take Rob oh. to realize you were right? <laughs> it depends on the situation. <laughs> right. The I used to work with was, my wife. Sorry. I used to work with my wife, oh. which is why I, I enjoy asking this question because I was in the same exact situation and depending upon who tells the story, I either fired her or she stormed off and quit. And there's a little bit of truth to both of that. But we've been married 40 years this year. So, you know, the marriage is strong. And I think part of the reason the marriage is strong is because we, we both realized it's difficult to work with each other. Uh, we're both very type A. Um, no one wants to, you know, back down. Uh, so it, it just didn't work well when two of those personalities were in the same room. But, but uh, in your world, it sounds like, each of you has a different skill set. Is that a fair assessment that what Regina does well, maybe Rob doesn't, and maybe what Rob's skills are are different than Regina's? Is that is that a is that an accurate statement, or, or are you both good at the same things? You want to take a crack at that? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think we have some overlap. I what I'm doing, I've actually never done before in a, in career form doing marketing i my background is in um, accounting and finance and in software support for financial software so totally totally different but um and i'm i'm you know doing some little accounting audit stuff here and there for for day test but um yeah i don't have any any technical skills at all so that in that way, our talents are very, very different. I have absolutely, I have no idea sometimes when I'm reading copy for a, a press release, what half the stuff means. Right. <laughs> You're like, Rob, is this true? 
I mean, and sometimes if I'm listening to something, it's like Charlie Brown's teacher, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. It's the phone, the phone on Charlie Brown, right? Wah, wah, wah. Um, Often we'll be we'll be at trade shows, and and the two of us will be the the sales force manning the table, so to speak. And I'll have to get up and go visit a colleague or go to the bathroom. And inevitably, somebody shows up at our table while I'm away. And her job is to, if it's an engineer in particular, she'll have to stall that individual <laughs> until I get back, you know, six minutes later to talk about the technical aspects of what they're looking for. But in that sense, we, we complement each other. I mean, she knows the business enough, the general overview of the business, the history, the capabilities, the basic marketing approach of what we're trying to do. You know, we have two main businesses. She knows what they are. And then when somebody wants to get into the particulars, she can turn it over to me and I take it from there. Sure. I would, I would hazard to guess that because you have no ex or had no prior experience in marketing, you're probably a really good marketer. Uh, because I think the rule, Rob, you and I have talked about this over the over the last many months and, and years uh, about our view of marketing a little bit different than maybe a traditional conventional view uh, but but um, uh, I, I think a fresh approach to marketing the old tricks just don't work anymore they're they're kind of in the realm of eight tracks and teletype machines you know in terms of of their effectiveness today um, so I, and I know Rob has shared with me some of his uh, his unique views on marketing and I, I totally agree with that and I assume that that probably comes from you as well. Uh, it's a different world today. And I think the, the traditional marketing sound people hear is goes back to that Charlie Brown, you know, teacher telephone thing. It's just, it's just noise these days. And, and there has to be a connection made. So when, when you guys took over the business, when you bought the business, uh, all of a sudden, you know, there's a new, new owner in town, new sheriff in town, I would, I, I, I'm not saying this happened, but my, I, I'm just presuming maybe because the motivation of the prior owners was to, um, you know, uh, milk the, uh, the cow dry and, and, and use that funding for other things. Uh, it's not, it's not right or wrong. It's just, it, it's a very common, it's a common, uh, strategy for people who own, uh, more than one business. Um, Maybe that also landed on customers. I'm sure some customers probably experienced some of that, uh, you know, from the other end of, of, of the pipeline. How long did it take you to, if you had to, to turn around a customer's perception that you're the, you know, it's not the same old company anymore? In some cases, immediate. <laughs> Just because you weren't them, right? Well, mainly because they had a, a run-in with the previous owners. They had a bad story to tell, and they were relieved simply to see that there was new ownership with a new attitude who was receptive to listening to them where prior ownership wasn't at all, was maybe very dismissive, was just generally hard to deal with. And here is somebody new, and the mere fact that somebody new is showing up and, and interested is refreshing. Um, that was one side of it. The other side of it was due to the circumstances of how we acquired the business, there was about two years of Merck that we had to work our way through. And what I mean when I say Merck, my two 
ex-partners were, were in the contract manufacturing business. And for a long period of time, there was this misunderstanding, particularly in Silicon Valley where we're headquartered, that the, the misperception that our company, Daytest, continued to be owned by a contract manufacturing company. And when 60% of your business comes from EMS companies, you can see the obvious conflict there. So the conversation often with, with new and existing customers went like this. So I, I hear you're owned in part or 100% or by XYZ company. Is that true? And then the next eight minutes would be spent going through the whole list of events no, that's not true for the following reasons. And I have six inches of legal documents. If you really want proof and don't accept what I'm telling you, I'll mail you facsimiles of this stuff and you can read it for yourself and be bored to tears and have a cure for insomnia. But it is true. We are independent. We are the owners. There are no other ties that bind us to anyone else. Um, we are free and clear. So that was about a two year process where I probably had to talk to, oh my goodness, three dozen companies over that time, dispelling that rumor or working my way through those weeds in order to give them confidence that they wanted to do business with us again. Back when I started my business, uh, my former employer sued me. They, they just thought that they could, it was a strategic lawsuit. It wasn't to win or to lose. It was to have me run out of money before we ever got to trial. You know, so they, they depositioned everybody. They subpoenaed everything and all these depositions, and it was, it was just crazy. Uh, and they, they, they came within a few cents, probably literally a few cents of, of driving me out of business, but I, but I survived because all we have, you know, you have nothing to lose when you start from nothing, right? You, know, just, you just have passion and grit. And, um, but they, their MO was to call our potential customers when we were competing and say, you might want to question whether or not you want to buy from that company. You know, they're being sued, right? And they'd like, no, we didn't know they were being sued. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They're being sued and they're probably going to lose. And then they'd call us and say, is it true you're being sued? I'm like, who told you that? This company. I said, yeah, they're the ones suing us. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a, it was this perfect uh, scenario for them. You know, they caused the drama and then they highlight the drama which is i guess you know business wars so money is required to start a company money's required to sustain a company money's even more money is required to grow a company uh how did you you know without getting deep down the you know the the personal how did you fund the acquisition of this company uh did you um charge up all your credit cards? Did you walk into a bank and say, you know, we're good people, give us money? Uh, had you been saving for this for a long time? Have you run out of relatives? Did they stop answering the calls when you, when you called them? What were the, what were the, the main vehicles of, of, uh, of acquiring, financially speaking, well, acquiring the company? It was, uh, it was largely an equity swap. And when, when my partners bought me out of the, uh, of the contract manufacturing business that we owned, um, money changed hands there, and that money ended up being a large part of the seed money that we used to build up Daytest. Daytest had a customer base at the time that was paying the bills. It isn't that it was going down the drain, but it was kind of flatlined. 
and and so we took the money we acquired in the in the transaction in the in the partnership ending transaction and and took a chunk of that and used it to upgrade our business so so we used it for capital equipment acquisitions improvement of the facilities marketing efforts new personnel um you know and in a, in a few instances when when times got tough to fund payroll when that became necessary um all the things you need to do to to keep a business going and again a, a lot of that 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 first two-year period in particular was simply getting the brand identity out there again getting the name identity out there again because uh, not only was there there that group of, of of clients who thought we were somehow affiliated with a competitor but we also had a another group of clients who thought we were dead and buried who simply thought Geez, I thought you guys were gone years ago. You're Rumors not, of you're, my you're death. Still in business? Oh my Rumors goodness. Rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated, right? There you go. So that was another challenge we had to we had to work our way uphill against, and uh, you know, uh, just just getting the word out, just writing misperceptions, just explaining, yes, we are here. No, we are not dead. Um, please come do business with us. Come see what we have. That was a full-time job for those two years. And that's unique to acquiring a business. When you start a business from scratch, no one's thinking you're dead. No one's thinking you're owned by somebody else. No one, you don't have any reputation. In fact, your reputation is that you don't have a reputation, which is scary <laughs> yeah. enough for people. But if, if you had a reputation that was confrontational, it, it is, I, I think, like a giant battleship trying to slow it down turn it around, change direction. There's so much inertia in your reputation. I think that inertia is, is really hard to, to, you know, slow down and, and, and go the other direction. I, I think that's a lot more challenging than starting something from scratch where there's zero um, reputation. So that's, that's certainly a challenge. And, and inevitably you would come through, you would, you would resurrect skeletons of the past You'd, you'd call on some customer who got upset about something uh, a previous owner said 13 years ago, and they've borne that grudge all through the years, and they're just waiting for that day when you show up penitentially at their door, and it gives them the therapeutic opportunity to just lay it on you and let them have it. And all you can do in that circumstance is let them talk, get it out, and when they're done, you say, Okay, I'm sorry. I had we had no control over that. Apologize that that happened, but here we are. It's a new day. Let's talk. And right. some do, some don't. Yeah, some just wait for the moment. That's their therapy moment. And uh, yep. it, it's like walking through a field of landmines in the dark. Yep. <laughs> you don't know you stepped on one until you stepped on one. Yeah, that, the other that challenge we had. Happen. The other challenge we had in those early days. Um, that we inherited was we were largely dependent on a handful of customers. Um, early on, in fact, our largest customer was 60% of our revenue, which is a big problem. That's a concentration, so that was as the a, banks would call that it. That was an immediate problem. And three years after we took over, that large customer went from 60% to 0%. 
and they gave us very little notice about that. So there was a mad scramble to replace that customer. Um, fortunately, um, that is no longer the case due to the nature of the work we do. We, we have literally hundreds of customers now, and we actually have a KPI built into our quality management system that no one customer will be more than 10 to 15% of our business revenue-wise at any given time. The banks would love I'm you for that. I'm happy to say we adhere to that. Yeah, well, the, you know, there's a reason why when you go out for a line of credit, the banks look at your, your aging and your receivables and your customer profiles. And if they saw 60%, they would probably discount the entire amount, right? They would just assume exactly. that's not there. And they would only value your financial relationship with them on the 40% r remaining, as long as they're not yep. a concentration. So if the banks are doing that, they know something. They know where the risks yep. are. Yeah. Uh, so how do you, how did you handle growth? I've said this on this, this podcast before on other episodes that in the world of real estate, you know, the three most important words are location, location, and location. And certainly in the world of business, uh, particularly young businesses, small businesses, I think the three most important things are cash flow, cash flow, and cash flow. In fact, in, in my experience, I was more interested in cash flow than profit because Profit was this goal I'd get to someday, and cash flow is something I needed today to cover payroll tomorrow and every week thereafter. So how did you handle the polar opposite factors of cash flow and growth and equipment acquisition? You're not in a cheap business. The machines that you buy to conduct testing for your customers' products are relatively expensive, uh, yes. expensive, not just relatively expensive, they are expensive. So how were you able to manage growth, which costs money, equipment acquisition, which costs money, and, and cash flow? Well, a couple ways. Um, we're, for a small business, we're pretty sophisticated in our budgeting. Um, we do a very elaborate budgetary exercise at the end of every calendar year where, where we'll first put a sales forecast together. We'll look back on the, on the prior year, even two years in some cases, at our customer base and then use that to project forward what we think our sales will be in the coming year. And then we take those raw numbers and we'll construct kind of a middle of the road scenario, a conservative scenario, and a a rosy scenario, kind of a shoot out the lights scenario if all green lights are hit. And then we take those numbers and, and construct financials from that, projected financials. So we'll do a complete balance sheet. We'll do a complete income statement. We'll do a complete cash flow analysis from that. And that becomes the basis for our planning for the year ahead. Um, what equipment can we acquire? what new services should we offer? What personnel needs are there going to eventuate to support all of those services? And that enables us to then plan and accommodate growth. And we'll, we'll look at, you know, the 5% scenario, the 10% scenario, you know, the, the lucky scenario, 30, 40%, whatever the number happens to be. And we do our best to plan from that. Do we hit it on the on the nose every time? Of course not, but at least it gives us a means of thinking our way through the various problems that we think are gonna present themselves in the next year. 
Does that mean we plan for a pandemic in the last year? Of course not. You know, nobody did. It all hit us out of the blue. Um, but we were able to navigate it because we have some of these tools in place. And the other thing that we do is we're pretty careful in how we uh, vet new customers. We, we try to ascertain what they want, when they want it, and just as importantly, how sophisticated they are. Test engineering is a very technical business. It's not a matter of just popping out widgets. You have to know what the customer wants and just as importantly, what it's going to cost and they know what it's going to cost. And if they don't have a realistic appreciation of what a test project is gonna cost, then oftentimes you have to be rather ruthless and say, I'm sorry, I don't think we can help you here. And, and maybe this isn't the best use either of our time or of your time. And, and maybe this project you have in mind just isn't gonna work out th this time and we'll have to take a pass on it. So that's a long roundabout way of saying it's often just as important to say no as it is to say yes. And can I add a little bit in terms of, please? you know, our, uh, I mean, for some equipment purchases, we use money we had in the bank. Um, we have accessed lines of credit for, you know, with the bank who, who like what we're doing for other equipment purchases. We've had some form, a form of partnership with one piece of equipment. And we have also been a demo site. So we work with the, the manufacturer of the equipment and say, if you put it on our floor, we use it but you can have your Northern California customers or potential equipment purchasers come and watch it work. That's so, good. We've done the same thing. That is, that's, that's a, a good use of putting your hard-earned reputation, leveraging your hard-earned reputation, right? If, if you didn't have a good reputation with your clients, the last thing they would want to do is give you equipment because they don't want to be associated with you. So it's, that's actually a, kind of a badge of honor that they would, they would, um, they would put a value on your reputation and your ability to make their product look good. And, yep. and that's worth, that's worth a payment. You know, that's worth bank financing. Uh, you know, it's a great alternative to that. I find that entrepreneurs, uh, particularly in the early days are exceptionally resourceful people. We MacGyver our way out of a lot of different things. I remember when, I first applied for a line of credit. This is before I started the business. I wrote a business plan and uh, you know, went to the bookstore. I couldn't afford the book, so I just sat in the bookstore and read kind of <laughs> cliff notes versions of what I should know. There was no internet back then. And um, wrote a business plan, took it to the bank with 100% expectations that they would fund it because who wouldn't? They'd be, they'd be stupid, they'd be foolish not to fund this, this aspiring adventure. And of course, they listened to my pitch and I gave them, you know, I went to some copy place and everything was spiral bound and, and nice covers and, and it was, you know, it was nice. And uh, they were merciless, merciless, they had enough mercy to not tell me no right then. They waited a week to send me the letter and which I kind of, first I was angry and then I appreciated the fact that they didn't just like cut me off in the middle, like Simon Cowell would on American Idol or whatever show he's on, you know, <laughs> you're, you're out. Um, and of course they turned me down and 
the next three banks turned me down. And, and of course they would, because in order to get money from a bank, you have to kind of prove you don't need it, right? <laughs> Which is this yep. catch-22 that so many businesses find themselves in. Uh, so you, you managed to, uh, through equity swaps and things like that, you sold a company and bought a company. So that was perfect timing. So the only issue you had was turning the reputation around and figuring out how to buy equipment. I'm sure that's the only issue you had. So let's talk about those, whatever other challenges there were in the journey of Daytest and of, of Robert and uh, uh, of Regina. And it, tell me about what was scary, what, was, um, what kept you going. I, I, I'll backtrack a little bit. One of the things you and I have talked about this before, Rob, I believe is that one of the traits to be an entrepreneur is you have to have a very poor assessment of risk. And, you know, you have to look at something and go, not just as the glass half full, it's a third full. It's, it's an eighth full. There's, there's still full in there somewhere. We, we don't have, we just, we see the risk, but we discount it. And we feel like we can beat the odds because, I don't know, just poor assessment of risk. We have passion, we have determination, we have blinders on in, in many cases. Um, Robert, you, you seem to be a very analytical guy. You don't seem to be a person who would be overtaken by just sheer passion or, or sheer gut. You seem to be the type of person who lays everything out and studies it and you don't seem to be a rash person and Regina, you don't either. So what, what were some of the challenges and what made you feel confident that you could show up the next day and overcome those challenges? And tell me about that. And, you know, were the successes enough Were the few successes in the early days enough to overcome more challenges or what's your MO for, for uh, wading through all that? Perseverance and grit. Um, there are there are lean days. There are hard days. There are days when the phone doesn't ring, or or nowadays when the when the email doesn't come through. Conversely, there are days when the phone never stops ringing and the emails are inundating you with with requirements from customers. Um, so there there's up and there is down. Um, you go through recessions, you go through booms and busts. I've worked in Silicon Valley my entire career. I have, well, since the mid late seventies, probably seen 10 or 12 different boom and bust cycles. Um, you get used to them. You try to take the long view from that, but I'd be less than human if I didn't say it's hard. You know, you wonder, in those quiet periods, do, does anybody know we're out there? Does anybody recognize we're here? And the other unique challenge to being in the test engineering business is people don't want to do business with us in the first place. In the minds of some, um, especially those whose job it is to assemble printed circuit boards, testing is viewed as a non-value added service. And therefore, they don't want to spend, EMS companies don't wish to spend that marginal dime on testing if A, they can avoid it, or B, if they can perform the same or equivalent task in-house with the same or equivalent equipment. And usually 
that means that the initial sales contact by me to them ends abruptly. Something along the lines of, oh, we've got all that, or our process is perfect, or we have no need for your services. And then we don't hear from them for three months, six months, two years, whatever the case may be. And then you get that Friday afternoon call at 445 as your, your thoughts are turning to the weekend and somebody's on the phone desperate because you know they just had 500 boards recalled from the field and they need assistance with failure analysis or something needs to be tested that wasn't tested before because the yields are declining dramatically and they're trying to figure out why. And so all of a sudden in a moment of crisis for them, they enlist our services. That's often how our relationships begin. In those late hours, weekends, off hours, where crises have this unique habit of de developing, we get the call. So you're really planting seeds for the future. Yes, you, you, for sure. you're, you're definitely a, um, a farmer in many ways. You're, it's not an impulse buy. They don't just say, yeah, you know, I can use one of those. It'll be, that'll be cool in, my, in the corner of my, of my shop, or I'll, I'll just send you boards out just, to, you know, just for a feel-good. It's, it's we don't need you until we really need you. And then right. they probably want it tomorrow, or they want results right away. Is that correct? Usually. Usually, yeah. like, um, I'm, I think the world record we have was 20 minutes. We actually had a customer near us who said, I'm on my way. I need to x-ray a board that's failing. It was a bad BGA or what, whatever the case was. I will be there in 20 minutes. And he was as good as his word, showed up in our lobby. And fortunately, we had a time available on one of our machines that day and were able to help him out when right. he walked in the door. So you have a, a couple challenges. One is you have a, a service that no one wants to use. Something has to go wrong. And in, in, in not in every case, but in many cases, something has to go wrong before you guys look attractive to them. And they have to admit defeat. Someone has to convince management to spend money they weren't intending on spending because something didn't go right, right? So no one really wants to say, I'm the guy that, that messed up the reflow profile and now we have to go pay Robin Regina to, to fix it and to find it. So you have that issue and then you have competition. You're not the only game in town. I, I, you, you, I'm not aware of how many other testing companies there are. You are keenly aware of that. But I would imagine you're not the only game in town. So given the fact that people don't want to use you, they have to use you because they have a problem greater than the pain threshold of using your company or any other company. Uh, so you got that going for you or not going for you. And then you have competition. So how does day test, you explained how, you plant the seeds and eventually they'll realize they, they need you when they need you. So that part I get, but how, how does they test stand out from other testing companies? What, what uh, perception do you leave when you're planting those seeds that would make them call you rather than, you know, half a dozen other companies that they could also call? What makes you stand out in, in your field? The short answer is the, the wide variety of our services. We, we have a very large suite of services covered under two businesses. Our original business, which is test engineering and testing of printed circuit board assemblies, our first business. When we opened our doors in 1984, that's what we did. In those days, it was, it was exclusively in-circuit testing. 
And then along the lines, we added other capabilities, flying probe, boundary scan, AXI, and so forth. Our second business is non-destructive failure analysis and inspection services using imaging technology. And we started that when Regina and I acquired the business in 2009. We bought our first AXI system then, and we've added three other x-ray systems since then. And that second business grew out of the first business. The first business, we would develop a program, design the hardware, test the board, the board would pass or it would fail. If it failed, initially or originally, we'd give the board back to the customer and say, okay, you gave us 192 passed, eight failed, here are your eight failures. Well, customers would press the issue and say, okay, we have eight failures, why did they fail? Tell us why they failed. From that, that was the seed for the failure analysis business where we acquired instruments and tools, very expensive instruments and tools to enable us to look deeper on those failed boards and say, oh, they failed at this pin on this BGA because there was a crack in the solder, because there was a head and pillow defect here, because the voids exceeded IPC specs, whatever. We were then able to tell the customer in greater depth, you have these failures for these reasons, go back and correct your process. We've Pareto-ized them for you. You can implement this data that we have for you in your process and eventually work ourselves out of a job because you'll get 100 out of 100 boards on your next production pass or maybe after several iterations, and then you move on to the next revision of the board. From that, word gets around. When you, when you, when you tell people you have four x-ray and CT scanning system, word gets around to engineers far and wide, hey, send boards to these guys. And what began to happen after a period of time was we, we would just get suspect boards showing up to be x-rayed, to be CT scanned, and they wouldn't even go to the test engineering business. Somebody else was doing the testing. Somebody else was doing the manufacturing. We would get them in extremis where they were desperate to figure out what was wrong. And so we would provide that service on a short-term basis, and we, and, and we built them up and and you acquire businesses you you acquire business that way and you also acquire confidence from those customers who like what you do you bailed them out of a problem and they have friends they have colleagues and so word spreads to them the whole network effect does its magic and referrals work that way yeah very and good and we also Regina. have very quick turnaround with you know we can usually turn a project around with great haste. And that's something that other some other companies can't do, so. Right, a little bit more nimble and, and Yeah, our MO of a customer is an engineer with a problem with a limited amount of time. Usually a man management at his or her company is coming down on him or her saying, solve this, you know, our quarterly numbers depend on it. Lots of money is riding on it lots of prestige is riding on it. So the, the pressure to provide an answer is considerable. I would imagine, yes, absolutely. What, uh, Regina and, and Rob, what skills do you think you possess today, business-wise, that you did not possess when you first acquired Daytest? All these years later, what have you learned to do that maybe you didn't, didn't come naturally before. 
I can say marketing, absolutely, because that was just diving into a complete unknown territory. I had never done anything with press releases or, you know, setting up a, a website or, or, you know, how, how do you put together an ad for a magazine or, you know, anything like that. That is completely new to me. So, and, and how did you acquire those skills? Is it something you just looked at and, and, and say, thought that this is the way I think it should be done? Or did, did, did you look at other companies as a guideline or did someone teach you or how, how did that skill come to you? I just, I mean, we decided that I would get involved in doing it. And then it was just a matter of, yeah, what looks right, what doesn't. We have a PR firm. And so I could, you know, ask for their help with, you know, I mean, they're they're the ones who have the graphic designer, for example, to to put together something. So I would get the concept, bounce it off of my husband, and then, you know, okay, this sounds pretty good. You know, maybe bounce it off of our, our office manager too, or something like that. And okay, then I'll go to the to to the PR firm and see if they can get the, the technical person to put this together. It she's she's selling herself short mike she she actually in an earlier career worked in the brand identity business she worked for a, a company in san francisco that did brand identity and product placement so while she she was more in accounting and finance she at least saw the activities going on every sure. day and she has some notion of you know what what raises the profile of a product, what works, what doesn't, that sort of thing. And we fortunately, in, in, we're not quite as, as long married as you, but 38 years is pretty close. And so Very we close. both have a notion of- It's of, a rounding error, it's like the same. And, yeah, it's and serendipitously, error. our tastes tend, tend to be quite similar. And so, so we often look at things the same way and, and approaching it with fresh eyes, not being professionally trained in marketing, we can also ask uncomfortable questions that maybe somebody with a marketing degree might not ask. And so our ads tend to be a little quirkier, a little more different, maybe less on the technical specs and more on the, here's what we can produce for graphic effect. And to the extent that that works, we're, we're, we're happy that, that we do it that way. Excellent. Two more questions, and then we'll let you go back to running your business. Um, so, uh, Rob, you you spend a lot of your time in uh, work volunteering for SMTA. You're on the global board of directors, and uh, yep. you you know I know it firsthand because I also am on the the same board of directors, and I see all the you're busier than I am on it, and you're involved in so many different things and chairing different uh, activities and, and hosting online meetings for various, uh, various things. What causes you to have a, a full-time and a half job running a business, uh, which we know doesn't, doesn't start at nine and end at five. And what, what makes you say, I want to give back more. I want to, I want to I wanna do this, this part for free. Uh, what's the motivation to be involved in our trade association the way you are? 
Well, there are altruistic reasons and there are selfish reasons. Selfishly, we, we get involved, our business is involved because we want to find new customers and new applications for what we do. Uh, altruistically, we, we believe in the industry. I've worked in it my entire adult life. I've actually worked in the electronic packaging industry in one form or another since I was 16 years old and I'm 62 years old now. And, uh, I've come to the conclusion after all these years that, that I like this business, fortunately, and um, want to contribute back to it. Um, show younger people, younger engineering graduates, um, what we appreciate, what we've learned and get them involved. And SMTA is a good vehicle to do that. So to the extent that, that both of us can participate, because Regina's a chapter officer uh, as well, um, we really enjoy that. And we, we love meeting people and, and we've gotten to know you over the years through SMTA and, and you and I, as you said, both serve on the board in various, various aspects. So uh, it, it boosts us, it boosts our businesses, uh, it boosts our industry. And, and if we can be the face of our industry, so much the better, I think. We can attract like-minded colleagues, male and female, and, and, and hopefully lead to continued growth, uh, micro and macro. Yeah, excellent. Regina, uh, a, parting, a parting question here. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say, and we've talked about this through various SMTA events and, and others, that there are not enough women in our industry. It, it has been historically a male-dominated industry, although that's changing, thankfully. And, it, and it not just male-dominated, old male-dominated, right? We, you know, the, there's a lot, of, a lot of experience in our industry, let's call it that way. Uh, and the whole silver tsunami, gray tsunami, whatever term you want to put, is occurring now. So a lot of the older men are leaving which is opening the door for younger people which is encouraging and younger females not just young males young females uh, you are in a, a pretty rare position not only are you a female in our industry which is still a minority you're also a business owner in our industry which is probably a, another minority even even more so is that your perception regina that that what I said, there, there's not enough women in the industry. And if so, how do we change that? Is it changing? And how do we change it further? Uh, I think I think there aren't enough women in the industry, but it seems like it's starting to change. Um, I think more young women are being encouraged to go into STEM fields. Um, I still think there's hesitation. I think um, SMTA getting involved in um, uh, getting chapters in universities is great. Um, some of that's beyond the control of even SMTA to try to encourage it because it's, you know, it's got to be something where young women are just encouraged to go into STEM. I mean, I have a degree in math. And I was a weirdo in the late 70s and early 80s. I mean, it's just like, what? You know, there were like two women in my program or three. Um, and then I didn't even use pure math when I got out. I ended up doing accounting. But um, 
I think I think things are evening up more um, just as you know as the world changes, but it's slow. And 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 I think SMTA is doing the right thing to encourage women uh, by having programs that are specifically for women. Um, and the, the monthly uh, wind down Wednesday thing, and then you know the Ohio chapter sponsored that uh, kind of a three hour um, webinar about equality and that kind of thing. I think I think women have to see that it's okay to be a nerd in an industry that's mainly a male industry. And, and but yes. they also need to be treated better by the men in the industry. So the men need their own form of education. With yes, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll tell you something offline later. I don't want to make any enemies on the show here, but the, but I'll I'll tell you an experience I had uh, later, uh, which is horrible for my audience to hear. Sorry about that. But um, uh, so la- very last question. I I have many last questions, but this is actually the last question. How much of your business success do you attribute to your skill and luck? Give me a percentage percentage. Let's start with Rob. Skill and luck. Um, 40% skill, 60% luck. But having said that, um, success, the, the old truism is success is where preparation meets opportunity with a dash of luck. Um, and, and it's often a timing thing. You're in the right place, the right time, the right circumstances. You have the solution to a problem. And ours is a highly technical solution. We can either do it or we can't oftentimes. And, and so it's, it's actually a very simple com- conversation. Can you do A, B, C, and D? If you can, great. Here's the job. Here's the contract. Go. That's that's often how it works. Um, but a lot went into that. That sounds really, really simplified. But you know, years and years of preparation went to be able to become qualified to reach that point. Certain certifications, you know, certain Mill Arrow certifications in order to do the business in the first place. Without them, you're not even having that conversation. So, so. There's a whole background, a whole constellation of stuff that goes into reaching that point. Excellent. Regina? Well, I mean, I would tack on he, to the skill and luck thing. I think history, what is history? Is that skill or luck? You know, I, I don't know. Is it 50% of each? Because just Rob's background of, you know, being in this business since he was a teen. I think helped a lot, just having all those connections. Um, so maybe that's part of the years of preparation too. Uh, it's kind of almost like a third component in in our case, because he had that you know long, long history uh, of understanding the greater business and having the connections. So yeah. is that luck? Is it skill? Is it a third bucket? Yeah, it's good perception there. Um, the network, good observation. The, yeah, you, you you certainly have to consider the network effects. Yeah. Absolutely, and you know I, I think there's luck and skill. 
without luck, you're just sitting at a, at a table in Vegas. You can make a lot of money, but it's, it's a finite time you can get away with it because luck goes, you know, both sides of the coin. And I know a lot of very skilled people who just never are successful. They've got all the skills, but they don't have either the drive or the passion or the grit, or, as you said earlier, Rob, or, or, or the luck. There are some people that if it wasn't for bad luck, they'd have no luck at all. And so I, it definitely, whether it's luck, luck is a, really an unfair word. It really is synchronicity. You know, the, the, the stars lined up. The universe was kind that day. You, you happen to sit next to someone on an airplane who was describing what they do and they have a problem and you can solve it. Those are the synchronistic, lucky kind of things. I don't think any business survives on luck. As I said, it benefits from it uh, and, and is hurt by it sometimes. But certainly it comes down to the skill and the, the passion of the operators. Eventually you have to have a track record uh, right. for that word to get around. And if that word doesn't get around, then you don't have a track record. So it's kind of a, a feedback loop. And uh, for us, a large source of new business is referrals. That engineer we did a good turn for six months ago tells a colleague, she calls us up with her problem, we solve her problem, she in turn tells a colleague, and the cycle repeats itself. And we see that over and over and over again, year in and year out. Well, that's a great way to end it. Um, the, the, uh, the referral is you know, the ultimate compliment. It's the gift that keeps yep. on giving. And, you bet. Because uh, they'll lead to another referral and another referral. And, and next thing you know, uh, you're on the show talking about the successes that you're enjoying now uh, versus all the hardships to get to that level. Uh, so, well, go. Thank you both, uh, Regina and, and Robert, for being my guest today. And thanks for sharing Daytest's journey and your journey, uh, both as individual entrepreneurs and as a married couple. Uh, and uh, thanks for uh, being so candid. I really, I really appreciate it. And I know my audience does too. Uh, audience, we will put the information for Daytest in the show notes and we'll put contact information, email addresses for both uh, Robert and uh, Regina. So if you'd like to reach out to them about whatever services they, they provide, if they have a solution to a problem you have, that, that could be the synchronistic luck. This could be the lucky episode right here. Um, and then they can put all that skill to work for you. But thanks for sharing. Thanks, Rob, and both of you, actually, for all the work you do with SMTA uh, and from a chapter level and a, a national, global level. Uh, I appreciate working with you guys. And uh, I'll look forward to... Uh, seeing you virtually and hopefully sometime real soon maybe at, at the show coming up smta ai coming up uh, in november no doubt. in minneapolis i'll look forward to actually seeing you guys there and, and many others so thanks for being my guest thanks Thank my you. our thanks pleasure for having us good to be here well that's a wrap thanks for joining me on this episode of the concept to creation podcast a special thanks to my guests robert boguski and regina lathrop of daytest don't miss an episode. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. The Concept Creation Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many, many other podcast sites. A video version of this podcast is available on the Concept to Creation YouTube channel. If you're watching this on YouTube, be sure and subscribe and click on the bell icon to be notified when new episodes are available. We release new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of each month. Thanks for your feedback. Please keep it coming. Email me right down here at mike at mikeconrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. 
Thanks again for listening or watching. Stay safe, stay healthy, and of course, stay happy. And I'll see you again very soon. And I was meant to be free, meant to be free.